Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 10. Yes, the cantata was excellent last week. We went to the 5 o'clock one, brought my in-laws, and then we went out to dinner, and I got home in time to turn it back on and watch the Hallelujah Chorus yet again. My question is, if you're at home watching the Hallelujah Chorus, are you still supposed to stand up? And then, yeah, Sunday, Sunday we spent all day setting up a uh, wedding. My son-in-law's sister got married somewhere up north of Dallas, and my son-in-law actually did the service. He's an engineer. And uh, it was outside in the country at a very nice venue. So he gets up there and he starts to talk, and all of a sudden we hear, bang, 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 bang. Well, apparently two lots over, the sheriff lives, and he and his sheriff buddies come out there with their guns and practice. And then the four-wheelers started racing by in the next lot with the kids screaming. And oh yes, it was in the landing pattern of an airport. So the airplanes were coming over, then the rooster started, and then the donkey started going berserk. The, the, the guy that worked there told me that one time they were doing a wedding and half the people there were from New York City. And they said when the gunfire started, they all got up and wanted to go inside to get away. And he said, no, it's the sheriff and this is Texas, so. Mark chapter 10. Today we're going to finish Mark chapter 10. The pivotal part of Mark chapter 10 was in the lesson last, whenever we met last time, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Remember, you always go up to Jerusalem. It is the, the spiritual high point. It is also the physical high point of the surrounding areas. So you always go up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. If you will, Jesus has been avoiding the uh, authorities in Jerusalem. He's been up most of his ministry north of the Sea of Galilee, over into Samaria, over onto the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and he hasn't made it down to Jerusalem. But he's been telling the disciples repeatedly I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be turned over to the authorities, I'm going to be beaten, and I'm going to be killed. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. And on the path toward Jerusalem, the disciples have this debate about who's going to be the greatest and all of this, and John and his brother come and say, ah, can we be number one and two, and all this discussion. And Jesus says, stop all of that. You don't know what you're talking about. So we're going to do one more little story on the way to Jerusalem. And then starting in chapter 11 is actually going to be the final week of Jesus' life for the rest of the book. For the rest of the book. So picking up in verse 48 of chapter 10. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with the disciples, a uh, and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Okay, Bar 
Timaeus, son of Timaeus. That's the name. Bar-Jonah, the son of Jonah. We see this throughout the scripture. So you get the picture, right? There is Jericho. This is not the Jericho that was destroyed, you know, when they came into the promised land. This is a later rebuilding of it. What is your... 46. Excuse me. Pardon me. <laughs> the print is too small here for the numbers. <laughs> yeah. I can read the letters fine. Sort of. My, my wife did give me a Bible with bigger print. That I only, I only use this one when I'm up here. Maybe I need one with even bigger print. 46. (laughs) He's walking on his way to Jerusalem. He goes through Jericho, and there is a man sitting by the road. The man is blind. This is not that abnormal. This is what the poor and the needy would have done. They would have sat by the side of the road. They would have spread their outer garment on the Uh, place in front of them, and they would beg for money, okay? There's no social services. There's none of that. The people had an obligation to take care of the poor in their community, okay? And that's what we see right here. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, How did he know about Jesus? There are those who speculate that he had actually met him at some point, but I don't think so. I think he had just heard that somewhere, someone had told him that this guy could heal people. Jesus had a reputation. And he sits there and goes, okay, Jesus, have mercy on me. It's an interesting phrase, and I thought about it and then decided that it didn't make any sense, so I wasn't going to talk about it. What's the difference between mercy and grace? Do you know what this is? We talk about this. Uh, Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. Okay, I commit some crime, and I am to be punished, and I don't get it. I have received mercy. Grace is receiving that which you don't deserve. So they're kind of the flip of each side. So my mind sits here and goes, why is he asking for mercy? Why isn't he asking for grace? Well, there is this idea that if I'm blind, it's probably because I did something wrong. We see this throughout Scripture. I mean, just go back to the book of Job and sit there for a while, and Job's wonderful friends are sitting them sitting there telling him, Job, fess up, you must have done something bad or bad things wouldn't have happened to you. So the blind man is sitting there and saying, Jesus, have mercy on me. Now we see an interesting response though. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be Silent. Why would they do that? Why would you tell somebody who's blind, who's calling out to Jesus to be quiet? Because he's annoying. I mean, he's interfering with your celebration. 
You're sitting here, this crowd of people going in, and here this guy is yelling. Just be quiet. But there actually might be a second reason. What does he say? Son of David. Now, remember, if you will, repeatedly in Jesus' ministry, when he would heal people, he would tell them what? Don't tell anybody. Now, they always did, which I always found was interesting, but he would always tell them, don't tell anybody. The demons themselves, when he cast them out, they knew who he was. And he would say, be quiet. And guess what? The demons actually obeyed him. That was kind of an odd thing. So all of the disciples' experience with Jesus was, shh, it's a secret. He's the Messiah. And here is some guy on the side of the road yelling, Son of David, which means he is the Messiah. Shh, it's our secret. Don't tell anybody. But you know what? Jesus isn't telling anybody anymore. Don't tell anybody. We're done with that. We are on our way to Jerusalem. He is on his way to the final confrontation with the religious officials who are going to hand him over to the Romans, who are going to beat him, who are going to kill him, just like he, Jesus, prophesied. So, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him. And what, did, what was his response? Huh. But he cried out all the more. You've seen this, right? You see it in kids. Okay? Be quiet. And guess what they do? They start making more noise. I mean, it's just something in you. So let's... I mean, let, let's state the obvious. Can we? What does this man want? He wants to be able to see. What does the crowd want to keep him from doing that? I wrote down a question, but I'm not going to ask you to answer it. Are you the blind man or are you the crowd? I don't know. But he cried out all the more, and Jesus stopped and said, call him. You know, he's over there. Bring him over here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, remember he would have had his outer cloak sitting there to collect the money, and he just abandoned it. I don't know if it had money in it. I have no idea. It didn't matter. He threw off his outer cloak and he came to Jesus, and Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? It's a pretty basic question. Now, just an inference, though, don't you think Jesus knew? Don't you think Jesus knew what the man wanted? But Jesus wanted to make sure the man knew what the man wanted. 
So he asked them, and the blind man said to him, Rabbi, which is a very intimate term for a teacher or a master, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Very clear, Jesus, this is what I want. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now, you don't really want to argue too much with Jesus as a general rule. What does Jesus say? Go your way, your faith has made you well. We need to make sure we remind ourselves that Bartimaeus had faith, had belief that Jesus could heal him. It is the power of God that heals him. It is his faith that puts that power into action. By acknowledging his understanding, his belief that Jesus could in fact do this, Jesus said, that's it. It is interesting because in the life of Jesus that we've worked our way through at length, we see repeatedly, sometimes he says, your faith did it. Sometimes, eh, whatever. The faith, our faith, is not the power. Our faith is what is allowing the power to operate. Now, we know that Jesus can do whatever Jesus wants to do. God can do whatever God wants to do. But Jesus acknowledges the strength and validity of this blind man's faith. Which is interesting because, once again, repeatedly in the book, he has chastised the disciples because of their lack of faith. This man had a need that he could not fix. And he knew he couldn't fix it. It just couldn't be done. He saw an opportunity of someone who could fix it, and he believed. He believed, and God huh, saw that faith, honored that faith, and healed him. So, immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now, if you want to have another long discussion, which we're not going to have, I'm driving Edith crazy up here because I keep doing this. Do you remember the story of the guy that was let down from the ceiling? Okay, and he healed him. But wait, he also forgave his sins. In fact, he did that first. And that caused all kinds of hassle. I mean, who, who are you to forgive somebody's sins? Well, the miracle, the healing, was simply the sign the picture that he had the power and authority to forgive the sin. 
It doesn't say here that Bartimaeus uh, believed in Jesus, he joined the church, he was baptized on Sunday, and he joined the Sunday school. It doesn't say any of that. But what does it say? He followed Jesus. That is the definition. He, by faith, had allowed God to work a miracle in his life, and his response was to follow Jesus. Now, I will repeat the question that I repeated a while ago. Are we blind Bartimaeus? Do we acknowledge that we have some need that we are incapable in and of ourselves of meeting? Or are we the crowd? Shh, don't tell anybody. It's our secret. Just saying. Okay, that was the end of last week's lesson. Chapter 11, verse 1. I can read that one. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you, it, it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back immediately. Okay. They finally are getting to Jerusalem. They go to Bethany. I told several people uh, while I was b before class that I, of course, you know, sat down at my computer and Googled on how far it is it between Jerusalem and Bethany. And what did it tell me? 5,900 miles between Jerusalem and Bethany, Oklahoma. <laughs> go figure. It's actually a couple of miles, okay? One point something miles. It's an easy walk. I say that to tell you what's going to happen for the next week. Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem almost every day. There's some discussion about the timeline. At least four of the days, he's going to go into Jerusalem. And then at the end of the day, he's going to go back to Bethany. And that's where he'll spend the night. So we need to keep that in mind. He's not staying at a hotel in Jerusalem itself. Now, we also need to remember everyone in the Jewish world is in Jerusalem. Why? Hmm? Passover. Every Jewish male family that is capable, is supposed to go to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is packed. It's packed with lots of people, lots of stuff going on. Keep that in mind as we continue this story. So Jesus sends two of his disciples into town and says, you'll go into the little town. This isn't Jerusalem. This is probably Bethany or Bethpage. And he says, you'll find a colt tied up you see the colt, you untie it, you bring it to me. You know what this is called, right? Theft. Okay? Borrowing. 
If anybody asks you, tell them that the Lord has need of it. Huh. The Lord has need of it and will send it back immediately. As soon as he's done, he'll send it back. Now, just curious. Somebody shows up at your house and says, I need to borrow your car for an hour, but I'll bring it back immediately. Show of hands, how many of you are going to give him the keys? Probably none. I don't think so. Maybe. You ever see the musical Come From Away? It's, a, it's on some television station now. My kids stream it. It's a musical about on 9-11, all the airlines that had to land in Gander, Newfoundland, and this town of 6,000 had 6,000 visitors, and they fed them and they clothed them, and you know what they did? They left their keys in the car, and if you needed a car, you went and got somebody's car, and you brought it back when you were done. Just say, okay? It's a great musical. That's the story. Let's see what happens. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside of the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Once again, there are those who assume that the owner of this colt had at some point met Jesus. I mean, remember what Jesus told them? Tell them the Lord has need of it. I personally have never thought about that in that way. I just assume that Jesus, that the Holy Spirit, that God had gone on ahead, and when the guy said, the Lord needs it, the Lord needed it, and off it went. That's been my view of the story. And some of those standing there, and they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. What is this referred to as? The triumphal entry. This is Palm Sunday. If you've been at our church, well, pre-COVID, on Palm Sunday, the kids of the church will go through the sanctuary with palm branches. That's what they're demonstrating this situation right here. Picture it in your mind, if you will. Jesus is sitting on a colt. Jesus is sitting on a colt that has cloaks on it to make some form of a saddle, okay? Just to try to make it more comfortable. He starts going into town. We have, to the best of my knowledge, no indication that he'd ever ridden anything. He did all of his traveling walking, okay? Why now? Why on a colt now? And he's coming in, and we have a crowd of people. Now, notice the, what it says. And those who went before 
And those who followed were shouting. We're going to talk about this shouting in just a moment. But the idea is this group would say, Hosanna, and this group would say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this group, because that's the way they would say these things. Psalm 118, where we're going to go in just a moment. So the scene is people going into the gate of, of Jerusalem, shouting Hosanna, and somebody back there saying, who comes in the name of the Lord. And the crowd is kind of going, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Now, some of them would have heard about him. Some in the crowd would tell the crowd who he was. And you know what? Everybody loves a parade. So I would suspect people just start tagging along. But remember, it's a crowded place. We're not talking going down I-30. We're talking about going through the narrow streets of Jerusalem. Now, this morning, if you were on I-30, you would have noticed that it was closed, but that's a whole different story. That's the picture. And here's the question. And I'd like you to answer the question. Why is Jesus doing this? Why are the people responding? Let's just start with the first question. Why... For the first time in his ministry, is Jesus not just allowing the people to tell others, he's allowing them to stand there in public and say, this is the Messiah. Why do you think it's happening? He's ready. The time is ready. That's probably the big reason. There's no more hiding this. The next day, we're going to cleanse the temple. And at that point, there is no more. I mean, it's like, hey, religious leaders, I'm here. But here's the second question. Why were the people doing this? We have said repeatedly, and I believe it still applies right here, that the people have a mistaken idea of what the Messiah is going to do for them. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. David was a warrior. All of David's life, he fought people. And when he wasn't fighting people, he should have been fighting people because he got in trouble when he wasn't fighting people. But that's a whole different story. He was a warrior. You have Jesus on the colt, the crowds yelling and screaming, and sitting over there in the corner are a couple of Roman soldiers just watching. Over on that corner 
are a couple of Roman soldiers just watching. And those Jews hate those Roman soldiers. What they want is David to get rid of the Philistines or the Romans. They want David to reestablish the Davidic kingdom on earth. They want Solomon, the son of David, to be there in all of his glory when Israel mattered. That's what they wanted. And here he comes in, and we are going to be the ones that are going to force the issue. Roman soldier over there, go tell your commander that the Messiah has just shown up. And he's going to knock heads and take names. But guess what? He had told his disciples, right? I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the authorities. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be handed to the Gentiles, and I'm going to be killed. He had told them what was going to happen. But they don't want it to happen. Can you imagine the joy and energy of being one of the disciples and you've been off in the boondocks wandering around Nowheresville and all of a sudden you're in Jerusalem and there is a crowd saying, yay, he's here. Surely all that stuff that Jesus said couldn't possibly be true but it's going to be true. And those who went before and those who went after were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest. What in the world does Hosanna mean? It is actually interesting. This passage comes from Psalm 118. You know, Psalm 118 is the one right before the long one. Psalm 119. Verse 25 says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, this is interesting. You know what transliteration is? You take a word in some other language and you just kind of change the letters to your alphabet to give you some idea of how to pronounce it. You know, you and I, most of us probably can't even read Greek letters, right? So they take a form of Greek and they use English letters to kind of fill in something that's close. That's transliteration. So if you take this Hebrew word that is used in verse 25 that says, save us, and you transliterate it into Greek, you get Hosanna. And you take Hosanna in the Hebrew word and you transliterate it into English and that's our word for Hosanna. It is a form of praise and enthusiastic response, but what he's really saying is, save us. Hosanna, save us. And then verse 26 of Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Psalm 118, you could almost make the case 
that this is everybody who comes to the Lord. But in Mark, we see that it is applied to a particular person. That is Jesus, the Messiah. So, and he entered Jerusalem, verse 11, and went to the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he enters Jerusalem. There is this crowd of people. He goes to the temple itself. And as a good Jew, he is certainly allowed to visit the temple. He goes in the temple and it says he just checked things out. He just looked. We know what's going to happen the next day. Unfortunately, it's probably not going to happen for about three weeks in our lessons. But you know what's going to happen, right? He's going to come clear out the temple. In fact, let's just cheat, shall we? There's a discussion about figs, and we'll talk about that because it's kind of important. Um... But the next day, starting in verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem, this is the next day, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who, who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Pigeons? You know, for the life of me, I have never seen anyone outside of our church selling pigeons. Just saying. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. What's going on here? Well, remember, it's Passover. There's a bazillion guys in Jerusalem. And their requirement is that they present an offering to the temple to be sacrificed for their sins. So you're a farmer. No, you raise sheep. And you are supposed to present the first male, sheep, whatever, offspring, and you're supposed to bring it in. So you've done that. You know, earlier in the year, this lamb was born. You walk that lamb in. And there's requirements, though. That lamb has to be without blemish. So you bring it into the temple, and there's a guy there inspecting your lamb. And you know what? He looks closely at your lamb, and he doesn't like your lamb. Your lamb stinks. Well, I mean, besides that. Your lamb has some flaw. Take that lamb away. But you know what? I've got a lamb I'll sell you. Cheap. No, not cheap. I've got a lamb I'll sell you that will be okay for your sacrifice. I know it's a little pricey, but you know, times are tough. Crowds want the sheep. You got to get it now or you're not going to get it. If you don't get it now, you're not going to do your sacrifice. If you don't give your sacrifice, who knows what's going to happen to your family by the sheep. And guess what? They're making a lot of money selling sheep that probably are not any better than the sheep that you brought. But hey, it's been approved. Now, we're also talking about a 
Hellenistic, Roman, Jewish city. Okay? So you're a merchant. You buy and sell stuff. And you show up to pay your tax, because you have to do that too. And you pull out a Roman coin. Whose picture is on the Roman coin? Caesar's. Whoever the current Caesar happened to be is on that coin. That's an image. That is a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. You can't bring that into the temple. But you know what? I've got some shekels here. I'll buy your Roman coin. The exchange rate's not real good, but you know, you're kind of desperate. You need some shekels. So you take your Greek coin or your Roman coin, and you have to convert it into Jewish coins so you can pay your tax, and by the way, so you can buy your lamb that you have to have for the sacrifice. And somebody is making a killing off of all of this. And Jesus looks at this. And my contention is he had looked at it the day before. You know, sometimes we have this idea that this was just kind of a spur of the moment, angry thing on his behalf. You know, wow, can you see what they're doing? No. I think he sat up all night thinking about this. Just my opinion. Okay? And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. The temple existed to bring glory to God. The temple was not something to be monetized and turned into a cash cow. And the Jewish officials had allowed this to happen because I'm sure they were making money off of it. Now, read the next sentence. Yes, sir, ma'am. Uh, probably, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, they were on the temple land, property, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they would have been Jews, okay? Um, and I say that, I mean, there's nothing that would have prevented, I mean, I'm sure you could have been a nice uh, Roman shepherd and providing sheep and getting a kickback. I mean, it's a racket, okay? If, if you're not worried about keeping the temple safe, why are you caring about who it is that's making the money off of it as long as you're getting a cut, okay? We'll actually talk about this some more, but I wanted to get to the next verse just so we understood where we're going for the rest of the book of Mark. And the chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd were astonished at his teaching. You know, they had been worried about Jesus. They kept sending spies up to the northern part around the Sea of Galilee. You know, here, go test him. Go watch what he's doing. I am convinced every time Jesus taught, there was some Pharisee or Sadducee on the outer circle just kind of paying attention to what was going on. 
But now he has come into their midst and they have to stop him. And that's what the rest of the book is going to be about. How they stop him and then they don't. Because while they think they're protecting their way of life, their religion, their God, what they're really doing is working into God's plan to provide the salvation for all of humanity. As we work through this story, remember God is always in control. We sometimes think, oh, shoot, God's in trouble. God can't handle this. God is losing. And you know what? These religious officials are going to believe they're accomplishing their goal. But guess what? They're not. God is in control from beginning to end. And that's what we need to remember. That's what we need to remember. But do put yourself into the mindset of the disciples and the other people here. They don't see that yet. Even though Jesus had told them. I keep trying to repeat the same list. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, and they're going to kill me. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. They understood this. They didn't like it. They hated it. They wanted a Messiah. They wanted somebody to drive the Romans out. But Jesus knows this. What did we talk about in the last lesson? Servanthood, being a servant. Jesus came to serve and to be a ransom for all. None of this is Jesus out of control. All of this is God fixing the problem, which is how to reconcile our relationship with a holy God. And Jesus is going to do that for us. Have a good holiday, and we will meet again the first week in January. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the Christmas season. Thank you for the birth of Jesus, but thank you more for his payment for our sin. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.